Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. It's good to be with you. President Trump's speeches and tweets have long been considered to be inflammatory, but as of late, seems like he's doubled down on his usual bit of stoking division and fear. His kickoff rally in Tulsa was a flop. He shared a video of a supporter shouting white power on Twitter, and a surge of U.S. coronavirus cases is sweeping the country. This week, we saw a record single-day spike of 60,000 cases. All the while, he's been dismissive of the protest against police brutality and systemic racism while defending symbols of white supremacy at a moment of collective reckoning. Meanwhile, the president's job approval rating sits at a dismal 41 percent, and national polls show the president trailing Joe Biden by nine points or more. Of course, it feels like we've been here before. In 2016, Trump was counted out plenty of times, only to come roaring back. Here to join me to discuss what this all could mean for November's general election is Maya King, Campaign 2020 Reporting Fellow at Politico, David Nakamura, White House reporter for The Washington Post, and Claire Malone, Senior Political Writer at 538. Things are not looking good for the for the president. And you, I mean, you outlined the the real nuts and bolts of it, which is that it's not just that he's doing poorly in in national averages, he's doing poorly in these key swing states, and he's doing poorly with some of the constituencies that he uh, needs to win. Um, I think some of this is Trump's really poor performance leadership-wise during the um, pandemic, but I also think we have to chalk it up to the fact that Joe Biden, you know, the Democrats nominated Joe Biden and not say, a Bernie Sanders who might have scared some of those, you know, older white suburbanites who are now, you know, upset with Trump and seeking refuge with Joe Biden, who's sort of a conventional familiar face to them. Um, and, and you know, I think the fact that that Biden remains not super high on the on the headlines, <laughs> he's <laughs> he's he's sort of playing things well. I mean, it's certainly an unconventional and odd uh, race. I get lots of um press pool reports from the Biden campaign, and they're mostly for Zoom calls, which is funny. Um, but such is the nature of 2020 campaigning. So I think, you know, yes, the president will will probably recover somewhat in the poll numbers. You know, things often revert to the mean. But um, it is it is it is quite a hole to dig himself out of. And especially if we have a second wave in the fall of this pandemic, I think Trump is in a lot of trouble. David, I want to talk about then how the president and his campaign are trying to to maybe dig themselves out of this hole. Um, after his July 4th speech at Mount Rushmore, you wrote that, quote, the U.S. is already reeling with deep anxiety over the devastating public health and economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic and is also facing a cultural reckoning over the residue of its racially segregated past. So... What is his campaign staff thinking about the ways in which the president continues to lean in on this cultural reckoning? And does it matter to the president what his campaign staff thinks? (laughs) That's the big question every time, because it often does not matter uh, to the president what others think. 
we just saw the other day the president um, in the in the Rose Garden uh, doing a news conference about the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, uh, trade deal with the Mexican president. That's a reminder of the kind of campaign they initially thought they would be able to run, which was about the economic growth under this uh, administration. Um, the president had really felt that going into the year that he was in a strong position. But now, of course, uh, the, the, with the virus uh, and these protests, um, as well as some other news that's come out about uh, the president and foreign policy, it's really been a problem. You have books coming out right now about uh, from his, of course, his niece, uh, from John Bolton, that it really uh, punctured the president's message as well. And uh, they can't seem to write that. And what you've seen is the president um, deciding that. Uh, he doesn't want to fight the battle over coronavirus. He's pushing to reopen as much as he can to try to uh, juice the economy, of course, uh, try to get people feeling uh, more confident. But people do, don't. And the, the best uh, evidence of that was his own rally in Tulsa, where he tried to kick off again these public rallies, uh, which he really feels good about, likes to do, you know, and gets sort of energized by his, his crowd, his base. We, we all know, saw the arena was just partially full, about a third full, even though the campaign had said, uh, you know, up to a million people had requested online free tickets. Um, and that was an embarrassment. And so now what you're seeing from the president is that he's, you know, decided I, I have to fight what where I feel most comfortable, which is this mm -hmm. culture war. And even as, a, as you see his staff try to get him not to talk about certain really, uh, you know, touchy subjects, obviously, like the, the, the statues of the uh, Confederate uh, generals and the the Confederate flag. The president, you know, he's, people have said, oh, he stuck to the script and didn't mention those things in these speeches on July 3rd and July 4th, which themselves were still very uh, divisive and dark uh, speeches, warning of all sorts of uh, leftist, Marxist uh, threats to the country. Uh, he didn't mention uh, Confederate uh, symbolism directly, but then, of course, in a tweet just a day or two later, he did. And what you're seeing now is that the uh, president seems to be kind of taking over his campaign once again on it on his own you're seeing a re replay of 2018 where he's giving a lot of individual interviews where he feels he's his best spokesman um to different news outlets mm. from conservative outlets to others um he's made some changes to his campaign staff he sent a, a deputy a white house spokesman who he, he really trusts over to the campaign and he is hoping that he can write this but you're seeing the campaign really struggling um they had talked about expanding the electoral map, but now you're seeing them spend defensively in red states, including Georgia, uh, places like Arizona, which they had uh, won previously. And and that says something about where they are right now. So the president is usually his, his own top advisor. And I think that that's what you're going to see. And it's not changing anytime soon. No. Um, Maya, let's talk a little bit more about this Fourth of July speech. And then, as David pointed out, you know, he kind of goes back to his greatest hits and wants to be this candidate of law and order. And some of that worked for him pretty well in 2016, right? He was the culture warrior. Democrats are the coastal elites and they're keeping down middle America. Is there a reason to believe that this could in the end still work that as the president talks about, there is this quote unquote silent majority out there sitting in the in the middle of the country that they're not talking to pollsters about it, but they are worried that uh, Democrats are coming for all of their um, important, you know, mementos of American culture, whether that's the Jefferson Memorial or, you know, any other thing. I think the president um, is right to point out that there is a constituency of people who feel threatened by this moment and by this reckoning on race and racism in the country and people who agree with him 
when he says things like protesters are radical extremists and that taking down statues is an infringement upon American heritage. What I think he gets wrong is um, an understanding of just how big that group is. I think that the president is now through these talking points, appealing to a slice of his base that was going to vote for him anyway, and that was always going to support him. The part of his base that was uh, willing to attend a rally in Tulsa Mm. in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, these are the people that he is speaking to, and these are the people who are more than willing to engage and participate in a culture war. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know for sure what the, what, whether or not the polling would reflect that being a large group of people. Um, I, I, I'd like to, I doubt it just by looking at, um, the crowds and, and how small, how much smaller they've been, but it really, um, all remains to be seen, I suppose, you know, whether or not this is actually a viable group of people and whether it's a big enough coalition for him to build, um, to, that would actually result in success in November. Right. And and I want to get to the one thing we haven't talked about yet is the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? We have a major health crisis in this country. We haven't seen the president spend really any time talking about this. Um, the task force now, which used to be one of these daily press briefings, has kind of gone by the wayside. It seems like the president's hoping that he can kind of just avoid talking about it, Maya, and hoping that these other issues become salient enough, again, these these cultural issues become salient enough for enough people for him to win. Is that viable? The, the thing about the coronavirus is that it's it's taken a, a direct hit at the one talking point that the president has always been able to um, to rely on, which is the economy. And so, you know, there's no way for him to really be able to alleviate that immediately. Um, Politico reported yesterday that now Trump's health experts who are giving uh, the public advice on social distancing and wearing masks um, don't have a platform with the White House anymore, Mm. which is extremely dangerous. And now they've had to go out on their own, speaking with individual politicians Mm. um, and individual shows and things like that to actually get this message out. Um, And the more people who are taking... Trump's health advice. I mean, the states that are are, are worse off. I think um, South Carolina is a really good example of that um, as as one of the worst places now in the world uh, for mm. the coronavirus. And so, I mean, there's the president um, is is not able to to really talk his way out of this. Um, and I think as cases continue to grow in this country, more people are going to be looking at him for for guidance. But when his when his guidance is this is a hoax and that it's going to go away, um, it's not very effective. Yeah, I mean, I think he felt that he did as much as he felt was needed in the six weeks or so that the federal government did uh, sort of push for a broad shutdown. And even though um, some places and some states, including some you know very supportive of Trump, red states uh, didn't you know follow such guidance. Uh, as rigorously as some of the uh, places on the East and West Coast that were you know, feeling early brunt of this uh, pandemic, um, you know, the president said, look, I, you know, I, I follow the advice of, uh, of those medical experts who are telling me we have to do it. He talks often about, you know, I, I felt we had to shut down. Now, of course, this was six weeks late after he had first initially said uh, the virus uh, was under control and that Xi Jinping told him it would go away in the warm weather, which just was flat uh, untrue. But I think he felt that, that after that, he could get back to his reopening message 
and then sort of coast back to the, the comfort level of, you know, the stock market is back up, which he continues to point to, even though tens of million people are out of work. And he continues to have these sort of moments. Uh, I mentioned the the one in the Rose Garden the other day about the, the trade deal with Mexico and Canada, but also uh, he had one, at, you know, to celebrate the June job numbers, which people pointed out were you know somewhat incomplete in that the country now is uh, shutting down again because it just has to. And, you know, once again, the administration is offering, you know, two different messages. Um, as you said, the health health experts and the and the coronavirus task force have been sort of shunted outside out of the White House where they used to have their briefings to, to other locations at HHS. And um, that's been a, a, a problem. Uh, because the you know people around Trump have been sort of saying we need to sort of get this under control. We need to do something. They recognize that, and their you know aides, including even Ivanka Trump, are sort of pushing the message: you have to wear a mask now. Something that simple, but the president just refuses to do it. Um, just this week, they've been arguing over uh, the CDC guidance about how to reopen schools, and the president right. is pressing full speed ahead to do so. And you know, so once again, it's it's beyond just a political question. It's very it could be it's it's really dangerous to the public um, to get these kind of uncertain messaging. Uh, and the president just flat out uh, speaking untruths at times about this virus. Claire, I want to go back to just a, your piece you wrote the other day about the Republican mm-hmm. choice, a party spent decades making itself white. And, you know, we've had um, so many discussions, Claire, over the last few years about the fact that Republicans seem to have put themselves into this demographic cul-de-sac, right? They keep talking to a smaller and smaller group of Americans and that eventually that would just not work out politically. But Trump proved that there still are enough white voters out there that you can still win elections by appealing to just a very narrow group of white voters. Has the time now run out? And number one, but number two, and I want everybody to weigh in on this, what kind of long-term damage does this do to the Republican brand? Even if Trump loses, Democrats win, what does the Republican brand look like years from now after a campaign uh, for the last four years that has been so divisive on race and um, on these sort of quote-unquote culture wars? Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to to Carl Rove for that piece, and Carl Rove is obviously the sort of famous or infamous, depending on what side of the aisle you you fall on, strategist for George W. Bush, who you know who helped engineer uh, the the base strategy, right, turning out evangelical voters. And he said to me of Trump's, you know, of, of winning the electoral college, but not the popular vote. He said it's a fluke, right? It happened to his candidate. It's happened five times in U.S. history, but he doesn't see it as a viable long-term strategy, right? So he thinks that Trump needs to win the popular vote in order to win again. So it is not something that I think Republican strategists in the mainstream, or even frankly those who are who are advising Trump, think is a good thing. You win elections by addition, not subtraction, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, Rove told me that he thinks that people have misinterpreted his base strategy, right? He said, "Yes, we turned out evangelicals," famously by playing to the issue of gay marriage. But also he said, you know, we were making gains with suburban women, with Hispanic voters, right? The, you know, George W. Bush won something like close to 40% of Hispanic voters in 2004. They seem to have stopped trying to do any real appeals to um, voters of color. And in fact, in 2016, the Trump campaign specifically had, you know, outreach campaigns to suppress the black vote, you know, on on, uh, largely black radio stations. They were playing these, you know, the the super predator 
Hillary Clinton doesn't like black people types of um, ads, um, just trying to get black voters to stay home. And my what about that? I mean, the president at one point was talking about, look, I pushed criminal justice reform. We did more on criminal justice reform than any previous president, including Barack Obama. And there seemed to be this moment where he was at least outwardly trying to show some sort of appeal beyond this white base. Right. At the same time that they've sought out um, support from this voting bloc, the president is also spewing extremely racist rhetoric. And when your your top black surrogates um, are people like you know Diamond and Silk, who have pushed conspiracy theories and alienated themselves within the black community, that doesn't really set yourself up, um, doesn't set Trump up very well um, for really being able to connect with this demographic. Even more, um, one of the most prominent black Republicans, Colin Powell, has made uh, several very full-throated rebukes of this president. So I um, I think that the, the Trump campaign's playbook of trying to suppress black votes or um, paint Joe Biden um, as a uh, less exciting character or as even a remotely racist one, trying to play up the role that he played um, mm. with with being the architect of the 94 crime bill. I mean, these are these are the only tools that they kind of have left, and they're not that effective because Joe Biden, as as we know, has overwhelming support from African American voters. And I think it's also worth mentioning that, um, you know, Biden's slogan is uh, is the battle for the soul of America, which has turned this now into almost a moral argument um, mm. for his candidacy. You know, you're 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 choosing between someone who has espoused racist rhetoric and someone who has a steady hand and has said, I want to get America back on back on track and back um, to its soul. I mean, and so these are these are words that play well with black voters and play well um, with other demographics that Trump has has seen slip older voters, um, suburban white women, um, college educated voters, people who were who were on the fence about who to choose or even to stay home. These are all people now who feel energized to vote and to vote against Trump. And David, just about that, the soul of America, I mean, Hillary Clinton tried that as well, that there was a moral argument mm -hmm. that she made, you know, love Trump's hate, yeah. and and that obviously didn't work out so well. So what's, what's different about what well, Joe Biden is doing versus now? Well, I think, as Maya pointed out, Biden has... Uh, an enormous amount of goodwill in the black community. And, and, and you know, obviously another reason is because he served for the first black president. And I, you know, in 2016, it was no secret. I mean, President Trump, then, you know, candidate Trump certainly tried to demonize Hillary Clinton, but he was also running on some sort of backlash um, among mm -hmm. his, a lot of his base to, you know, Obama's tenure and the fact that, that parts of the country felt that he was, you know, he and Washington were not speaking for them, and that they were they were um, concerned about the way the culture was going and changes to the country, and felt threatened by that. And Trump, of course, capitalized on that. But it, you know, you just have to look back to 2012 when the Republican Party had lost the second time to Obama, uh, and they did the big autopsy, and and Reince Priebus was in charge of it, and wrote basically, we have to expand, uh, not shrink our our base, and we have to appeal to minority voters, and we have to deal with immigration in a real way. Uh, and Trump ran right against that, and even though he took. Uh, Priebus into the administration as mm -hmm. his first chief of staff uh, with this sort of 
you know, uh, you know, team of rivals, and he was going to have you know different influences from the from the far right of Bannon to sort of establishment folks like Priebus. You know, we see a lot of those establishment folks, most of them out. Uh, there was even some reporting, I think, in the New York Times recently that that Trump was musing privately that he was he was through with Jared Kushner's idea of of pushing for some more of these uh, efforts around criminal justice reform and some of the things that he he has touted as big successes right. for the black community, as as you mentioned. And you know, I think it's interesting. Everybody thought that if Trump lost in 2016, the Republican Republicans would be under this uh, big reckoning for their for their own future of their uh, party. Trump consolidated support in a way that you know, few people imagine. But I think if he does lose this time, it is a problem beyond the the, the reasons you, you all were talking about. But but also because Trump is not going anywhere, and he seems to be mm. certainly eager to stay in the conversation in ways that past presidents haven't in, on a day to day basis. I'm sure, and he'll he he'll likely maintain a lot of clout and. Um, you know, that, you know, Trump shooting from the sidelines as the party tries to rebuild itself. If it loses here, um, you have all these sort of uh, never Trumpers running ads uh, mm. like the Lincoln Lincoln uh, project and so on. Um, you know, former consultants who think that Trump has really, you know, damaged the brand. Uh, there, there could be that uh, continued fight um, among Republicans um, as if a Biden administration continue, uh, comes forward. Uh, and then, and then, who knows what will happen uh, with that four years from now? So, uh, yeah. Trump's done a lot of damage, and I, you know, I think for him, it's all about personal survival, and that's why he's headed down this path. But about how the future of the party beyond him, I don't know that he's he's that concerned about. Yeah, and that's a really good point. He is not going to fade into the background as previous right. presidents have. No, no. All right, <laughs> um, style. Dave, Maya, Claire, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. Maya King is a Campaign 2020 Reporting Fellow at Politico. David Nakamura is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. And Claire Malone is a senior political writer at 538. For so many Black people, The Wiz feels like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour... We'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Issues of systemic racism, police brutality, and reform are firmly anchored in our national conversation. The fury with which we approach these conversations has ebbed and flowed, at least since the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. But in the weeks since the killing of George Floyd, a new urgency has emerged. I think what we're seeing now is maybe an expansion of the demands that are being heard in the mainstream and Mm -hmm. of the demands that are being taken up by city council and at the state level. That's Daniel Nishanian, founding editor of the Appeal Political Report. He's been chronicling these changes. So it's not so much that things have not been happening, but especially the conversation around rethinking the scope of the role assigned to the police and therefore also the resources, the the amount of funds it receives. That conversation seems to be what's really been added into the Mm. uh, mainstream conversation just over the past over the past six weeks, though, of course, it's it, it, it has existed at, at, at many levels at, in uh, grassroots activism before. We've kind of, I think, the past month has taken seriously the idea that it's not enough to change the rules on 
paper uh, that, that the police is asked to abide by. It's also not quite enough to think about how to create consequences for the people who break the rules. There's a bigger culture around law enforcement and just the sheer size of the criminal legal system that has now really come under scrutiny over the past month. And, and that is what, um, at least at the level of the national discourse, seems, seems new in the past month. Well, I have been avidly following your Twitter, uh, and you have a wonderful thread that you started in early June, and you're tracking where reforms are taking place, linking to articles in local papers. One thing I noticed from just a cursory look at it is a lot of these are happening in some of the big cities, New York Mm -hmm. and San Francisco, obviously Minneapolis is in there. And then the other places where they were popping up were in towns that were uh, like college towns or more progressive Mm -hmm. towns. Norman, Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. was one of them. So is this just a progressive city phenomenon or is this happening in all different kinds of communities? I think that's a a great question and a very important question because we have seen at the level of the protests that are happening, we've seen them everywhere. We've seen them Mm -hmm. in, in smaller towns, we've seen them in more conservative areas. So it would definitely be, it's definitely important to not just pay attention to the big cities you're mentioning, uh, with a more progressive politics, but kind of around the country. I think it is, it is true that at the level of what city councils have already done over the past five, six weeks, it has tended to be concentrated in, uh, the bigger progressive cities or in, in smaller college towns. Um, I think a number of reasons to relativize that a bit. One is that at the state level, we have seen already some conservative states or Republican-run states, um, such as Iowa, pass pass emergency bills um, mm. that 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 add um, some rules, um, a, a ban on chokeholds, for instance, that the police uh, should follow. What we're also seeing certainly is is conversations and debates kind of around the country. And obviously, I want to remind everyone that it's only been six weeks since George Floyd's uh, murder and discussions mm-hmm. and debates are continuing. Um, and, and and we're certainly seeing also coalitions of maybe unlikely bedfellows. I think anyone who follows criminal justice reform debates might not find it unlikely, but there are conservatives who have been pushing these these, these issues for, for a few years now. Um, so for instance, on in Fort Worth, in, a, in just a few days, th- there's going to be a referendum on whether to renew a sales tax that is funding the police. And there we are seeing um, BLM activists may- making the case that we should reduce the funding of the police department. But we're also seeing some people who are from a conservative bent and a libertarian bent argue against the sales tax from the from a more traditional perspective of hmm. um, reducing the revenue. Given all the different kinds of reforms that you're seeing in so many different cities, are there any themes that are emerging or any, you know, sort of bullet points that you can share with us about the kinds of reforms that are taking place now that we really haven't seen before? I, I think I would classify um, the kind of changes we're seeing in kind of three big umbrellas. The first is um, changing the the rules uh, that are that the police is asked to follow. The kind of on paper, the the rules that the city, the police departments uh, create. So, for instance, a lot, a lot of cities have banned the use of neck restraints or chokeholds just over the past month. But the second kind of piece of the puzzle, the second umbrella, 
is that the core of the BLM argument really is this idea of a culture of impunity, that, that those rules on paper mean, mean very little if there's no accountability or consequence for them. And so I think the second umbrella of reform that, that, that is moving forward is tackling that culture of impunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for instance, I think one of the biggest things that has happened so far is that Colorado has passed um, the first law since since this new wave of protest to end qualified I- immunity, which is a defense used by police officers to kind of avoid a, a liability. Uh, so Colorado has has um, moved to end that defense at in a in state courts, and if that and that's right now a big topic of debate at the federal level. So it's going to be very interesting to see what what comes of that. And um, and then the third kind of umbrella of reform is is what I was mentioning. Um, earlier this idea that it's not enough to to treat this as, as some rogue officers that that it's important to rethink kind of the scope and the roles assigned to the police and more broadly um, rethink the footprint of the criminal legal system the footprint of uh, of incarceration um, and kind of take police out of things they've been doing and also therefore broadly criminal legal system so maybe the biggest trend we've seen just over the past six weeks is cities have taken out armed officers out of schools. Um, a lot of schools, a lot of cities have partnerships with the police departments to have police officers in schools. And and, and many of them, Oakland, Portland, San Francisco, have canceled that. But I also want to, again, make the case that this is a, there's a bigger conversation here about the footprint of the criminal legal system beyond law enforcement and, and its ties to, to racism. Um, that, that is leading some cities and states to reevaluate the bigger role that DAs are playing, that that prisons are playing, et cetera. And, and, and that's very interesting, that, that kind of big conversation that's, that's mm. unfolding right now. Are there places where some of these proposed reforms mm-hmm. um, have failed to, to be implemented? So there's been protest activism all over the country, obviously, mm-hmm. and and it has forced city councils to to take votes that are that that are for many members uncomfortable. Right. Um, and and the the biggest uh, headline headline failure, just to start with that, for instance, was um, the Chicago school board voted four to three last week or two weeks ago to keep police uh, officers in school, so to keep that partnership. And, and that has been very controversial. And um, a number of cities have also refused to revise their uh, the the budget of the police departments. Um, so I do want to say, just thinking about that again, that first of all, first of all, it's early. Um, and, and and second of all, we still are seeing a sea change in the political incentives around these decisions. Um, it used to be the case that for a city council member to vote to reduce the police budget would create a lot of headlines um, around around the danger of, of voting for such a thing. Um, and 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 backlash from from the police union, et cetera. But what we're seeing in many of the cities that have um, done even small cuts to the police budget is headlines that really prioritize the idea that it's not as bold as what the BLM activists wanted, and often um, as what other council members wanted. Often the opposition to even small cuts to the budget has come from council members who wanted bigger cuts. And 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 that and just the, the sheer mm. scope of that conversation just seems so new over the past six weeks. And it's going to be fascinating to see what comes of it. Daniel Lashanian, thank you so much for all of your insights on this. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. Daniel Lashanian is founding editor of the Appeal Political Report. Let's take a walk with me. Hands spread, guide my feet. 
take a walk with me. Singing there from a vigil held in Cincinnati, Ohio, following the killing of George Floyd. Back in 2001, Cincinnati was the center of unrest following the police killing of Timothy Thomas, a 19-year-old black man. The sound of scattered gunshots blended with blasts from police guns firing beanbags, tear gas. It mixed with the taunting of demonstrators into a sometimes surreal but dangerous mix in which a pregnant woman was shot with a beanbag. That sound from local WKRC-TV in 2001 covering the unrest. The movement that followed led to an overhaul of policing practices in Cincinnati and a groundbreaking, for the time, agreement on community and police relationships. Iris Rowley is the founder of the Cincinnati Black United Front. She was there in 2001 and worked on the agreement. They made the agreement with the city, and they do the standard um, use of force transformation of policies and procedures. The good thing about when the DOJ came to Cincinnati, we had already done the pre-work. They used all of our stories that we had collected to design mm. what they were looking at. So we had done the pre-work in the city of Cincinnati. And plus, both of these agreements are attached and adjoined at the hip. They are so intertwined that you can't separate the two. I mean, the beauty of it all is that we're the only city that has this. We're the only city that has in the first line that it says of our federal document in federal court, the Cincinnati Black United Front and the ACLU of Ohio sued the city, the police, and the police union. And we're the only ones that I know that has an agreement like this where the black community should be in all rooms helping to design, implement, monitor, and evaluate any police decision, any design uh, uh, around crime or blight, any and anything that has to do with public safety. Well, that's what I wanted to get to is we're in the 21st century now. This is almost 20 years old. Yes, ma'am. Are you surprised that there are not more cities that have put together something like the collaborative agreement that you have? Well, I'll answer that two ways. No, I'm not Mm. surprised. Oppression is real. Mm. Um, Scare tactics are uh, very evident, um, and they have been for a very long time. So we didn't get here easily. Uh, We got to this particular place being beat down, shot, killed, maimed, and scared, quite frankly, to death to even try to do something Um, and to speak honestly and openly and, frankly, to legislators who should support transparency and police accountability, and, and they particularly don't. You should be able to talk to chiefs and unions very openly and honestly about police abusing power. You should be upset when after 20 years, you're still getting resistance from the people that you pay to protect and serve you just like all other people in your city where you live. And what were they saying to you? I mean, what was their pushback when you said, here are the things we're asking for? What would they say oh, back to you? Yeah, the same things that you, you well, you, I don't, I've not heard them as much, but you're tying our hands. Then is that you're tying mm-hmm. our hands, you're giving us more work. We are, one of the things that I heard then that I hear now and that I've consistently heard is that this is a very tough and unsafe job. Well, I beg to differ. In the city of Cincinnati, you will find officers who've, who've never in 20 years plus being on the force, who've never had to pull their revolver. Never. And those are the type of individuals that you want, people who utilize the process of thinking through issues before just going to a lethal, deadly force. So you, we would hear things like that. This is additional work. And why are you making the citizens pay mm-hmm. for it? Well, what, what's, greater, what's the greater pay than death? 
um, then families having to live with that and or incarceration where we are seeing where it relates to black people that they're released after 20, 30 years saying that, you know, the, the evidence bears out that they did nothing. And where does fairness and accountability and transparency, where does that ever expire? Where is that not part of the job? Can you walk us through where we are in the city council and the budget for next year? What they did was move funding around from different parts of the bureau. So they took some money from training, Mm. they took some money from over here, they took some money from over there, and they created or they wanted to establish the Bureau of uh, Resources. I think that's what it's called, the Resource Bureau. Well, where it was supposed to address the needs of the collaborative agreement and other outstanding justice issues. Well, the the amount that they were taking from these other bureaus inside of CPD netted them a million, not that they were going to get an additional million. They still have a $151 million budget, and they've never been audited. We need for the police department's budget to be audited, the entire budget, to make sure that they are operating in the most efficient and effective way that benefits all citizens, not just one side of the city. And as a MAG member, this is what's striking for me. As a manager, advisory group member, community member that has been on the MAG since the inception, it was signed into law in federal court in the year of 2008. You did not share that with us I don't know what your commitment level to having better public safety is if you can't communicate to the people who are supposed to be communicating to their constituencies about what's happening. So when folks look at Cincinnati and say, you know, since 2001, there's been a lot of progress made in the relationship between the community and the police. Um and, and that other cities and areas should use this as a model. Is that a fair assessment in your mind? Okay. The relationship between public safety, more specifically police and its mm-hmm. black community, no matter what city you're in, is extremely complicated. Mm-hmm. And it's mirrored in a lot of murder, death, pain. And so you will get resistance from community. We can't rush community into mm-hmm. trust. You can't do that. That is something that's built and sustained over time. So we need to stop with the hurry up and it'll be fixed overnight. It doesn't work that way. So if you killed my brother, I'm going to live with the killing of my brother. And if I believe in and the facts don't bear out that it was justified and my brother did something or you could have used some other tactic to help save his life that you saw his life first before you saw a crime, then the me and the rest of my family and a whole host of group of people are not going to trust you or and going to want to work with you and or going to want to file a complaint because sometimes we feel as if nothing happens as we see now and our national leadership is saying just give police the right to do and beat the hell out of black people anyway and anytime that they want to so it's a constant struggle and fight being black in America and then to have to fight systems that you actually pay your tax dollar for is even more atrocious and gross. Iris Rowley, founder of the Cincinnati Black United Front. But I wanted to hear more about how the city is meeting this moment and renewed calls for change. So I called up Chris Seelbach. I'm a Cincinnati City Council president. I started by asking Councilmember Seelbach how the city responded to demands to defund the police. A lot of the people wanted to see a cut in our police budget. We mm-hmm. spend almost 70% of our budget, our operating budget on police and fire, 35% on police, uh, the police department. So many of the people wanted to see uh, defunding of police. Our mayor uh, and city manager had actually 
uh, recommended an increase of over a million dollars to our police department. Uh, and as you probably know, we're under you know uh, a contract with the mm -hmm. FOP. Uh, that's a two-year contract that expires next May. So there's a, there were a lot of limitations on what we could do in this budget cycle. Uh, but we did take the million dollars that was recommended to increase the budget by the mayor and, and take that away from the police and put it toward youth employment. And we've also done a lot of things. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the protesters want us to ban the no-knock warrants. I have an ordinance drafted to do that. Uh, they want us to stop using any kind of uh, gas, OC gas or uh, CS smoke, and we're studying ways to do that. They want us to strengthen our, our citizens complaint authority, which is the independent agency that allows someone to file a complaint against a police officer. Uh, they want us to fully fund that, which we did in our budget cycle, and also strengthen the recommendations so that they're just not filed away. Uh, so those are some of the concerns that people had, and, and we're taking all of them into consideration. And the banning of the no-knock warrant, I, having an ordinance drafted, and there will be a vote on that. So hopefully my colleagues will do that. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky originally, and that's where mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor was killed. Right. Uh, and Louisville became the first city unanimously to ban the no-knock warrants. And so I'm hopeful that my colleagues will support my ordinance to do that as well. I was reading some of the news accounts of some of, of the hearings that you were having. And at some point, one of your colleagues, um, vice the vice mayor, Christopher uh, Smitherman, said that while the Cincinnati police had become a role model for police community relations, since 2001, it's time, he said, to take reform to the next level. Is that the next level, what you're talking about, the no-knock warrants? Are you, or is what he's asking for something really even more significant than that? So, you know, we, a lot of what police departments are doing, we started 20 years ago after three unarmed black right. men were killed in 2001, uh, and we had a civil unrest here. Uh, and out of that came the collaborative agreement between the city uh, the black community and the attorney general at the time, John Ashcroft. Uh, and that led to uh, an abundance of community police officers uh, and the Citizens Complaint Authority. Uh, but many of those uh, things that were agreed to have lapsed. And so the last year or so, we have been working on a collaborative agreement refresh. We hired a full-time person to run that. Uh, but it has not been going swimmingly. The FOP president, had actually, when this all started, had actually refused to, to, to attend the meetings to attend the meetings of the Citizen Complaint Authority? No, to attend the uh, meetings of the Collaborative Refresh. Mm. Um, and so uh, what we're doing is fully funding the Citizen's Complaint Authority, and we are going to make sure that the city manager's working group, which is a group of people that advises the city manager on public safety issues, is brought back to life. It had not been active for some years, and so we're mm. bringing that back to life. And we're going to make sure that the Collaborative Refresh gets going and that if, if someone doesn't want to come to the table, then we're going to keep uh, the work going and ensure that, you know, we are serious about this and that we want to make the reforms that will make our police department uh, more responsive and, and uh, you know, th that will reflect the values that so many people are asking for. But if the, if the head of the FOP is saying he's not interested in yeah. doing this, what can you actually do about that? Um, how do you get buy-in from that person, that community? It's difficult, you know, and he is a difficult person. Um, but, you know, he's not our police chief. And our police chief is a very reasonable, uh, good guy, good leader. And so, um, you know, I'm hopeful that he will come back to the table. But if he doesn't, um, you know, we can work directly with the police chief who actually runs the department. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm confident that we can still pass and, and get consensus on some reforms. 
What was the reaction from the police union and um, from others in law enforcement about this budget um, that you had just passed that took this million dollars and and put it towards summer employment program and and not to the police department? You know, there was no testimony um, at any of our budget hearings from the police union chief or the police uh, chief or the union president. You know, I think if we were going to be cutting the police, which would lead to uh, mediation because that would be uh, breaking the contract, the two-year contract that we had, uh, and that would likely last a year if we tried to uh, cut their, uh, if we tried to break the contract. And we know that we are going to renegotiate the contract next May, so that wasn't a good idea. Um, so because we weren't going to cut them, there really wasn't an outcry from uh, police officers or the union president at any of our budget hearings. Uh, and I think that if they would have attended, uh, they would have been booed uh, quite loudly. And so how confident are you that you will be able to make some really significant structural reform to how police are funded and the sorts of things that they are able to do? You know, I am confident that we're going to make some real changes. Um, and I think that our, our council really does want to give direction to our administration to negotiate the police contract next May in a way that we've never done before. It will not be easy, and our, our union uh, will absolutely be pushing back on some of the systematic changes mm-hmm. we want to make, but we're committed to it. And we have a super majority of progressive Democrats on city council that, you know, that they value these reforms, that, that we've said we want to make these changes. So you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but I, I'm confident that in the next year, you will see big changes in Cincinnati and how we police. And the mayor's on board with all of this as well? <laughs> I'm not sure. But as I said, we have a super majority. And so we mm. can override any veto that he may have. And unfortunately, our mayor didn't show up at any of the protest or uh, didn't even really make any statements during all of this, uh, which was disappointing. Most of all of us uh, participated in the peaceful protest. We walked marching side by side with the protest. Many mayors throughout this country did. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where he stands, but I am sure that the super majority of council wants to see real changes. Chris Sealback is a Cincinnati City Council president. And one more thing from me. It's hard to look at where we are today and feel any confidence about what things are going to look like in November. After all, it was just a few months ago when our biggest political scandal was a meltdown at the Iowa Democratic caucuses. And we're also still haunted by the ghosts of 2016. Sure, polls show Trump potentially losing in a landslide today, but many of us thought the same thing was going to happen after that Access Hollywood tape came out. And it's also important at this moment, though, not to overthink things. It's not 2016. We're in the depths of a once-in-a-generation health crisis, and the person in charge, President Trump, is getting failing grades from the public on his handling of this crisis. Meanwhile, the more he leans into racial and social grievance, the more disconnected he gets from the swing voters he needs to win over. Can things change? Of course. And there's every reason to believe that a lot of the voters who are currently on the fence come back to Trump in the fall. But we also know that the one thing that's not going to change is the president. He's not interested in changing his approach or his focus. And politics is all about meeting the moment. In 2016, the moment was ripe for an outsider disruptor. This year, voters want something more steady and stable. 
Quick shout out to the crew. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Dina Sadamayed is our digital editor this week. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our editor and sound designer. And at WNYC Studios are Debbie Daughtry, our board op, and Vince Fairchild, our director and broadcast engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Call us anytime at 877-8MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Tanzina's back on Monday. I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.